0: This episode of Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Eric Strickland, and thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we're happy to have you. Uh, download us from your favorite podcast sites, whether that's Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, places I don't know about, or if you just uh, listen to us on the web uh, from the from the website. I ask that you please download us. It's good for tracking numbers, so you know download us that way. But uh, we're glad that you can join us. Um, you know, make sure that you follow us on all of our social medias. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on LinkedIn. We're not on Snapchat. Sorry, interns. I'm still going to fight that one. Every episode, I'm going to say that. No Snapchat for us. Um, And uh, make sure to follow us uh, at ntsb.gov on the website. Uh, We have a lot of information there about um, anything that we have going on. That's where you can get some of the most up-to-date information. So, um, make sure you follow us there and uh, that's that's some of the housekeeping tours uh for today but i'm very excited today we 're going to have sean payne uh, he 's a mechanical engineer and recorder specialist uh here at the n t s b and um you know we've talked to uh when previous episodes, some of your colleagues from down at research and engineering r e that 's what it stands for right yeah all right. yeah. yeah. I I just know some of the acronyms like it's it's re it's this and so I'm never quite sure if it's actually
1: engineering. It's where all the uh, acronyms are. We're all engineers, so <laughs> I guess that makes sense.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, uh, I, we're SRC, and I sometimes forget what that all, all right. stands for too. So you know, it it'll work itself out. But um, I'm really excited to have Sean here. Uh, I've met him a couple times and and heard him at, at different board briefings, and then um, folks around me have said Sean's got some pretty interesting stories. Uh, He's worked on some great cases, and so we'll get into some of those, some very technical and, and, um, you know, I think things that help show how how the agency works and really shine on some of the aspects that we have going on here. So uh, again, thank you for joining us. Glad to have you here. Sure.
1: Yeah. No, it's a pleasure to join you guys, and uh, I I like um, telling the public when I can. It's part of our outreach mission at NTSB about the work we do here. Yeah.
0: And, and, you know, we're, I didn't have to drag you kicking and screaming to do this either. So that always helps out too. And before I forget, I also have in the room uh, with me, Stephanie Shaw. So hopefully she'll get some questions to ask him. And James Anderson, he is on the dials, making us sound good every day, all the time. So I, I tend to forget to thank him for that. So uh thank you very much, James. <laughs> and one of these days I'm going to get you to talk. So, um, so, Sean, how long have you been at the NTSB? So
1: I've been here about, uh, I think it's coming up on five years in March. Nice. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, been a pretty awesome ride and a huge variety of stuff we work on down in the research and engineering lab that keeps us busy so
0: yeah so so you've been here for five years how how did you get to the ntsb like how does one become a recorder specialist i'm pretty (laughs) sure that's not a boxy check like in grad school or undergrad uh... like this is this is what i want to be like how does that happen
1: (laughs) so just like you know the, the name of the lab i work in in the research and engineering division is the vehicle recorders division and uh the easiest way to describe my job is that i'm the black box guy (laughs) <laughs> um, and that's that's the question I get most. Well, how did you how how do you get this job to be the black box guy? And it's, it, as I said, it it's asked of me on every tour I give. Um, so I think it it really started for me with my interest in aviation. Uh, like like a good portion of people at the NTSB, um, it's probably our biggest modal office. Mm-hmm. It, correct me if I'm wrong. No, you are. Um, correct. So really, I think if you ask my parents or my dad, it goes back to when I was before I could even talk, I, you know, he'd tell me I was pointing at planes in the sky and I don't quite remember that, but I do always remember kind of being interested in, in airplanes and, uh, back in the early nineties, my dad, uh, was taking flying lessons briefly and, uh, it was much different back in the day, but, uh, it was very cheap, namely. Yeah. (laughs) The the, the cost was was very different. I suppose inflation (laughs) hasn't accounted for that, but, uh, um is it like when i learned to drive when you're a kid and you're learning to fly do you sit on your dad's
0: lap and fly <laughs> the plane or not, are those rules a little different? i gotta kind of i'll get to that <laughs> um,
1: so uh i think it was it had to be like 91 or 92 um my first plane ride was in the back of this piper cherokee at a uh, sussex airport which is a small kind of well-known rural airport because they had a really big air show there um, and uh, I still remember that the first flight and, and I don't remember the whole thing, but I specifically remember like looking out the window and waiting to see the airplane leave the ground. Yeah. And I think I ended up crying <laughs> later on that flight and my, my dad and his instructor had to land. But uh, <laughs> I still actually uh, remember crying the take because I, you couldn't fly it? You no, know, I, I think I, I couldn't pop my ears or something, oh. something, something like that. I couldn't, you know, I was too young to really understand, you know, the pressure changes. And I first... I, all I remember is that they had to turn around because <laughs> something something I did, and we landed back at that airport. Um, I still remember the tail number of that plane, so I, I've actually looked it up, but anyway, long story. So uh, <laughs> aviation is kind of like a weird thing people are passionate about, and you kind of come back to these important moments. Yeah. Um, so I had flown in the back of that plane. That was my first GA flight, really, and then uh, I started in... I guess as I got a little older into model airplanes. So that's a lot, it was a lot different back then than, than it is now with, with drones and uh, kind of the skill required to learn. There, there was like a dedication you had to have to it in terms of always going to the flying field, which was kind of in a rural, ar- rural area and uh, it was a commitment to learn how to fly these small planes. I started doing that as probably six or seven years old oh, and wow. that that was really where I learned I say learn to fly and it sounds kinda silly, but uh you learn kind of all the mechanics and you build yeah. the models and
0: You get this? intimate with the aerodynamics yeah, and like exactly. what a flap does. That's really yeah, cool. I never thought of yeah,
1: that. Yeah, and then well fast forward today and I'm just ecstatic to see how the, the hobby is taken off. But <laughs> it was something me and my dad did and it, it enveloped a lot of my free time uh growing up and uh basically learning about airplanes and uh on a on a miniature level. And then uh, I guess it was somewhere I was getting my dad said, "Hey, let's go down to the airport for you." I think it was my 13th birthday to get what's called an introductory flight, and I don't know if they still do that today. But it was—it's basically a really cheap lesson where they try to get you hooked okay, on, on yeah. learning to fly a real airplane. And I went down to uh, Marstown Airport in New Jersey, which is where I'm from, and uh, did one of these $35 introductory flights. And uh, I wasn't quite tall enough. <laughs> So, and, and this kind of really isn't, <laughs> it's going to sound unique, but to a lot of pilots that uh, I know, it's really not all that uncommon to, to start pretty young. And uh, I think I sat on a, a phone book from, nice. the, from the FBO and uh, the problem was I couldn't, I could see over the instrument panel, but I couldn't reach the pedals. So I kind of had this fun flight and then I landed and, you know, it was kind of clear like, hey, I'm not really big enough to start this because there's no age yeah. limit required to start to become a pilot. Okay. It's sixteen to solo and seventeen to get your license, so uh really there's no anyone can start whenever um so you know kind of agreed okay i'm not I'm not really there yet, so uh, I'm just imagining that's
0: <laughs> that scene from Indiana Jones where he jumps in the car and that kid was driving the car with the blocks on his feet to like reach the pedals right I can't remember, I can't remember which what Indiana Jones that was, but I mean, yeah was, I just.
1: You're flying. You're flying with the little, you know, you velcro the blocks to your feet so you can reach the pedals. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it wasn't too far from that. So uh, I think you know, we flew over my hometown. I saw my house, and I was even more more hooked. Um, but I, I just needed to grow a little bit, <laughs> I guess. Um, Don't we all? So yeah, I came. I came back. I started uh, I guess I was 16, and uh, that's when I started flying, like nice. like seriously taking lessons and trying to go once a week or, or as much as, you know, my family could afford to send me. Um and I, I wasn't one of those people that that soloed on their sixteenth birthday, but I, I was close and then uh got around to, to seventeen and got got licensed back in uh yeah two thousand two ish or some somewhere thereabouts. I've been been flying ever since. So that kind of started my whole uh aviation career so to speak. Um went to college, got a mechanical engineering degree. Um in retrospect i i should have probably did aerospace but i i kind of was didn't really know the industry that well i was like yeah. well how many aerospace engineers possibly could have could they have jobs for i was really wrong <laughs> about that <laughs> um so i i did mechanical engineering which was kind of like okay i can go many directions mm-hmm. from here and um i uh graduated school around uh, the market crash i was i was originally going to I think gonna go into construction. A lot of the the jobs for mechanical engineers where I went to school, um, people were getting hired in construction in Manhattan. Okay. Um, and then they, you know I kind of was like, oh, it's a cool job, but uh, it's not really what I'm into. And uh, I end up uh, having an interview with the U.S. Navy for their their flight test um, flight test engineering division. It's called NAVAIR, uh, some people may have, may have heard of nav C. Well, nav C handles all the ships. NAV-Air handles all the Navy planes. Oh, cool. Um, so I started working for the Navy right out of college. Did that for about five years. I did some really awesome stuff there. Um, basically, I was a launch and recovery engineer for aircraft carriers. So test, testing all the new catapult systems for the Navy that oh, awesome. you hear about, like the electromagnetic uh, Yeah, so was system. it the,
0: the George uh, the George, no, yeah, Washington? Yes, George. George uh, it's a...
1: The Gerald Gerald Ford, Ford and too many G's. When you're we working for the Navy, we just referred to all the carriers as as numbers, so CVN seventy-eight. Because
0: um, that was a brand new system. If yeah. I remember so right. essentially,
1: yeah. I, I ended up leaving the Navy five years ago to come here, but uh, that stuff was all maturing at at Lakehurst Naval Air Station where I worked as a, awesome. as a test engineer there, and uh, really exciting programs, including the the first launch of the Joint Strike Fighter. So. Being a a young engineer and and a pilot, um, it was a really interesting job to have doing that. And specifically, I did kind of data collection and uh, what we call test engineering and uh, instrumentation. Mm -hmm. And that really is kind of the nuts and bolts behind what's involved in examining uh, an aircraft's black box is is how all these parameters work. So I was in this program at the Navy where... um, for for 1 year of my what they called internship even though I was a full-time employee I could I could transfer anywhere around the navy and uh I was I was sitting uh one day trying to because I liked my job there so much I didn't really seek out another opportunity and mm-hmm. I just kind of like oh I need to do something to to check this box and uh I was I was reading a navy newspaper and uh they had a story about um a, a black box from, from an F-18 that, that washed ashore in Hawaii. And I, the name of the article, I still have it today, um, is, is, I think it was like 21st century message in a bottle. So so the Navy recorders are designed to float, mm-hmm. which makes a lot of sense for, for an yeah, operation that, like the Navy. So uh, that's,
0: I wouldn't actually expect it because it makes sense. So that's right? interesting.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, it's called a DFERS deployable flight information recorder set, and they're on every F-18. <laughs> um, so it's part of what... Well, we get into later maybe about deployable flight recorders and new kind of technology for that. But uh, this this aircraft had it uh, had broken what's called a cross deck pendant, which is what the, what the public would call wire on the carrier. Okay. So in arrested landing, the the hook picks up a wire. Essentially, the wire broke. Uh, the cross deck pendant boat broke. The pilot ejected. The F eighteen went in the water, and the Navy never bothered to to. Grabbed the black box because they knew what happened, mm, yeah. and it was unfortunately a write-off for the plane. And That happened off the coast of Japan. So the article was about how this flight recorder basically drifted for years across the Pacific Ocean, washed up, and was found by a surfer. <laughs> That's so awesome. So uh, I, I read this article. I'm sitting on my desk, saying like, oh, I wonder if I could. I wonder if I could get a job with that Navy lab. And it said they called uh, what, was it, what was the name? Cifral was the name of the lab there. And common flight integration i'm sorry i can't I don't the remember the that acronym you're even that close <laughs> with all these acronyms i'm, I'm <laughs> well, very impressed yeah, as i said as an engineer but also <laughs> na- navy life is really all about acronyms in the military but uh so I, I i basically called the the it listed the division head in in the lab and they, and they interviewed her and i basically called her the next day and said hey i'm in this program where um Basically, my salary is paid for from a central funding location, and I can come work for you for free. And uh, I'd always been interested in aircraft accident investigation as a pilot, but I never thought I would have the flight hours or the flight experience to mm-hmm. do that. And I saw this kind of oh well, there's a way to to get into this whole you know investigative field as an engineer. Yeah. Um, so I I ended up spending I think close to a year down at the the Cifral Lab doing essentially maintenance downloads for F-18 um, uh, Defers, which is the floating recorder. And uh, had there been an accident, I would have done that. So fortunately, yeah. there wasn't an accident while I was there. Um, so, and we get back to how I got to NTSB. So we actually had to do uh, a mishap download of a, of a COD. That's a, I think it's a C2. It's a carrier yeah. board delivery. And, kind of the uh,
0: kind of the general purpose plane of exactly, the
1: navy. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, it, they had older older technology. They had a, a tape tape recorder on, really? on one of those aircraft, and uh, at the Cifral Lab, we That's didn't awesome. have the capability to do that. So uh, and that, and that activity was down in Patuxent River, which is not not more than an hour from here. So uh, working with, the, with those guys down there, they said, "Okay, let's call the NTSB. They're going to have the the capability to read this out." And uh, I drove up here with my coworker Ruben at the time to, to download this tape recorder. And I saw the, the lab for the first time here. And I was like, well, that's really cool. I, you know, they do not only, uh, you know, I was doing mostly maintenance downloads, like here's actual accidents yeah. and, then, and the, you know, walking to the lab was just filled with recorders. So, uh, finished my time at the, at the Navy, they're doing that. And I, I went back to my old job as a, as an recovery or launch recovery engineer. And, uh, I basically just subscribed to USA Jobs and put in NTSB, and uh, <laughs> I, you know, I had no idea that it would actually work. But I, I got notified of a, a job opening, and uh, um, I applied. And uh, I think I think Sarah was kind of surprised. Sh- she's the boss of, or sorry, the the supervisor of uh, the vehicle recorder division. When when maybe they got a resume that someone had actually had black box experience or yeah. had touched one before. <laughs> so I think that was kind of my my shoe in the door (laughs) so i've been here i think since march of uh whatever five years ago was
0: (laughs) i mean this is an amazing story but also just a story of hey if you find something you like don't give up on it and and call a number and (laughs) you never know what can happen yeah i
1: mean that's uh, that's the advice i give to anyone if you're passionate about something and uh you know you can find a way to, to make it work and uh it just kind of all fell into place that I found this job here, and it's a pretty good fit for me. I think. Yeah. So.
0: I mean, so you, so you, the flying aspects, what kind of got it all started for mm-hmm. you, and then the mechanical engineer, the engineering side of it, you really enjoy the data analytics mm-hmm. and the data that is presented within the black box. Mm-hmm. So you were able to merge it all together. I mean, so now are you kind of a, a data recorder, kind of? Yeah, are you, are you sold so, on it? And you want them everywhere? Like you, anyone you talk, anytime yeah, I mean, you talk I'll, to someone, like, hey, I, the, I bet you there's data <laughs> in there I could use. Do you have something there?
1: Yeah, so it's it's on our most wanted list for the past, I think, two years now. About uh, you know, basically recording technology in all of transit. Yeah, but uh, one thing that's interesting about this lab is uh, a lot of times where I mean we we do do I think it's somewhere on the order of a hundred orange boxes a year, probably even more than that. But we do probably more like five hundred you know unique devices will yeah. come so basically uh not only is the vehicle recorders a vision not only are we extracting data from traditional black boxes so to speak but also essentially anything in an aircraft or a train or or a boat or or a highway vehicle that's going to record some kind of data that's going to shed light on the accident so that's really what turned out to be the hidden interesting part of this yeah. job was not just downloading the the flight recorders and cockpit voice recorders but you know the real challenge is how much How much information can you squeeze out of something that's really not intended to uh, to give you something useful?
0: Well, and and you kind of talked about the different modes and Mm -hmm. and, uh, getting those data sets and those those data quarters, for lack of better, because sometimes they're not really data quarters; they're like a an engine monitoring unit or whatever. So you're getting that data and and helping use that to figure out kind of what went on. But you're also, I understand, repairing a lot of things too. That you know. So you have to understand all these different pieces of technology. So you have to kind of put them back together right. and then figure out to download them and then read that data and do all of that.
1: Right. So, yeah, there's a cool few unique things and cool things about doing that is one, uh, there's not really like a user's manual. We, we open up, say, here's how to repair this. So you have like a lot of freedom and creativity, um, which is different than a lot of engineering to, to be able to do this stuff. And, uh, I, you know, I've even had devices where I've had to break them further to repair them. and oh, and, nice. and, uh, and uh A skill I would
0: not have yeah, thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, know I, I break <laughs> plenty of things. I didn't know that that could actually right. be. Oh, yeah, I need to break <laughs> this a little bit more, please. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so there's all these unique methods of, of repairing these things. And I think in science and engineering, oftentimes, like, uh, creativity is, is overlooked. But I, I think it couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, and especially here, you're not. Yeah, You know, it's not just like a Dilbert in a box, um, yeah. you know, doing some kind of design engineering job. You have to think of a special way to make something work. Um, so our biggest challenge is, you know, no matter what we do to the devices, we never want to lose data. We never yeah. want to lose the data. So our procedures are all geared around protecting the eras- eraser, sorry, I'm saying it right, eraser of that uh
0: it was a really good movie no it wasn't <laughs> it <really laughs> i think that was a movie oh, yeah sure. yeah, Arnold so Schwarzenegger. yeah. Oh, <laughs> i'm yeah, glad you got favorites. it <laughs> <laughs> um so, so you're so you're kind of your core values to not make sure that you don't lose data no matter you you can do whatever you need to around it but just don't lose the exactly
1: data. so we don't want to lose it or corrupt it in any way yeah um so that's priority number one and then if you can do that try to extract it um so, so it's kind of become a competition amongst us in the labs like who can do the most with the least? I guess is the easiest way to describe yeah. it. It's a it's a it's a fun thing to try and make um, pull a lot of information out of something that, that, yeah. that shouldn't shouldn't really be usable. well.
0: And you said it's kind of like a competition, but it's very collaborative. Like all of you work together and look at it. So you right, know, it's not just like whoever's on duty. This is yours. It's only you that deals with it. I mean, you all work together, to kind of figure out
1: right what, what to do. Yeah. So in the lab, there's about a I think it's, the numbers seem to always be changing, but I think it's <laughs> seven or eight engineers and one computer scientist. And uh, basically, you know, we, we all kind of specialize in certain things, um, but we're constantly cross-training each yeah. other um, for for a number of reasons, and, and then as well as like peer reviewing our, our each other's stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely, you know, not couldn't, couldn't get the job done without all of us collectively. I so.
0: mean, that's really cool. I, I, I mean, it's not something, like you said at the very beginning, not what you expected. You're in, interested in the aviation, mm-hmm. but, you know, kind of all this other stuff. And, and then here you are and you're working on different modes of transportation. Mm-hmm. So uh, you've worked on some pretty, some pretty big cases in a couple of different modes is like, which ones kind of stand out to you that had a lot of either technical pieces to them or, you know.
1: Sure. So I think in terms of other modes, I can talk about aviation stuff, all, all podcasts, <laughs> but, uh. Other well, modes. There's a, there's a couple other pieces of aviation <laughs> right, I sure. know we'll get to yeah, later, we'll but circle yeah. Circle back around. <laughs> um, I think so. Re- just recently, the El Faro case wrapped up, and I was the uh one of the two recorder specialists on that. I did the audio side of things. Okay. Um, and so, for those
0: that, that aren't aware, El Faro was a um, a cargo ship that sunk in October of 2015. Yeah, 2015. Uh, during Hurricane Joaquin, and so there were a lot of you know, uh, 15 plus thousand feet is, is where it was located, right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. 15,250 feet. And I know that because I spent a lot of time looking for it. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You and James were on that together, weren't you? No. James Um, was on the third mission. Oh, okay. I'll touch on all the missions. (laughs) Um, So yeah, for me, that, that case started, I was actually at the training center when we got the notification and investigators here at the ntsb we get text notifications of when these accidents occur especially the major ones and I, I didn't think much of it i thought it was uh quite unique that a 800 foot long ship sank and that was the first for me being here um so it really wasn't until uh the ship was declared lost i think five days after the sinking at which time we we launched a whole i think 18 18 yeah. people so i wasn't a research and engineering wasn't a involved in the initial launch um because there was nothing really for us to, to to look at at that time um if i
0: remember the pictures it was a lot of beautiful ocean because the sky had cleared by then like right. the storm had gone through and it you yeah know.
1: so high pressure comes back and it's back to the beautiful day down yeah. there off off the coast of Acklands. um so yeah i think i i, I don't remember much about the, the first search but the iic at the time was tom roth rothy and uh he was out on the Apache, which is a Navy salvage tug um, for, I want to say, close to 20 days, 25 days. Wow. At which point uh, they never detected the, the ping from the, the VDR is, is Voyage Data Recorder. I'll should go back. Voyage Data Recorder is essentially a flight data recorder for a ship. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like a flight data recorder, it has an acoustic pinger. Um, so out on that first mission on the Apache, they, they towed, a, towed the pinger locator. And uh, never got a ping from the pinger, which we later find out that the ship, that the VDR had sunk with an expired battery. Um, a pinger
0: should ping since its name is Pinger. Right. It's just me.
1: <laughs> so legally, I mean, legally, but uh, by by regulations for 30 days, it, it should ping yeah. at the time. Um, so they never heard the acoustic pinger on the search mission, but they did locate initially the, sh- the ship's hull by uh, sonar. Mm-hmm a sonar tow fish from the Apache. And then, uh, they sent a, a robot down to, uh, to positively identify it. And the pictures become quite famous of the El Faro's, uh, stern with, sure. with the name El Faro and the big crack going through the stern. But, um, it wasn't apparent where the, the voyage data recorder was. It had been mounted to the ship's mast, uh, and the mast wasn't located in the main wreckage debris field. And then furthermore, they, the, the ship's bridge where the mast was mounted was found on that first mission. But, uh, the, the mast was missing from the ship and yep. of course, course. there the VDR isn't there. So, uh, I didn't really start getting involved until we started planning, you know, that Apache mission return, the first one and, uh, research and engineering in collaboration with, uh, the Marine safety division started putting together, well, how would we even go after finding this thing? Um, so Dennis Kreider, uh, an engineer down in a uh, research and engineering put together a lot of, um, Uh, technical data on, on where it might be, Mm -hmm. developed a a search engine, a search, you know, uh, basically mission parameters for where we would search if we went back. And then MS and uh, the managing director's office was able to put together, uh, I guess, the money for a second mission in which we utilize uh, the Atlantis, RV Atlantis, which is a ship from Woods Hole. Okay. So uh, as, I guess, as one of the younger people with, with uh, no, no kids (laughs) Who's gonna go out on the ship for uh 20 to possibly 30 days? <laughs> and I was I was excited to go out, so uh I was selected to go out along with Doug Mansell, who used to be a recorder specialist here and Eric Stolzenberg from the Marine Safety Office to go look for this thing. And uh we went out with Woods Hole, uh, an incredible team of people. Uh the, the sister ship or the or the the ship prior to Atlantis, the Atlantis one, I guess I would call. Sorry, they're actually back to calling it the Atlantis, but there were <laughs> there were a series of Atlantises. <laughs> From Woods Hole, and uh, the most well-known one was the one that found the Titanic. Okay. So uh, it was really kind of one of these moments where you're like, I would never envision I'd be out on this ship looking yeah. for a black box with Alvin the submarine, which was on board. Um, <laughs> I remember Alvin.
0: <laughs> it's like, that's, it's a I mean, it's a famous Yeah, it's a very, yeah. Yeah,
1: so I mean, you know, like I said, I was into planes growing up. I was in the most, every every kind of <laughs> device, and, you know, I had a model of it, and Here I was, you know, I got, I got to, it it was too deep to use on this mission. It's actually 250 feet beyond its maximum depth rating. So we couldn't dive in it, but got to sit in it and everything like that. So anyway, we, we spent a, I think it was five day voyage out to the, the site of the sinking to get over the wreck. Another 10 days looking for the recorder and another five days to voyage back. So in the end, it was about 20 days on the Atlantis. Uh, Great crew, great ship. Uh, We did locate the, voyage data recorder about seven days into into the mission that's probably we could we can do a whole nother podcast on (laughs) that um but anyway we basically trying to find a needle in the haystack there and uh we couldn't recover that the recorder using the equipment we had on board on that ship um which means that when we came back we had all the information of where it was and how not to lose it (laughs) and uh we sent james here out uh who's sitting next to me behind the behind the recording stuff and uh he went out to photograph and uh pick up along with i think doug and uh eric eric stoltenberg go i forget who who was the third Oh, adam tucker another marine safety investigator went out to go retrieve it and uh brought it back to the lab and uh basically three months straight of of decoding this thing started for me from from that part forward
0: and and and, a Kind of a, a truncated form, though you got it, and it was, you then had to,
1: mm-hmm.
0: for lack of a better term, kind of like cure it. You had to kind of get it into a state where you could, you know, start to access the data and do all those kind right. of things, right?
1: Yeah. So an interesting behind-the-scenes story about that was, I I I don't think a VDR, and I might be, I'm pretty sure I'm quoting the history right, but I think it was the deepest recovery of a commercial VDR. Yeah and uh we it's, weren't it's
0: official history now because yeah putting okay, it now out it's there. in the podcast <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on
1: record so uh yeah it, it was actually a unique circumstance because we weren't sure had it, had a device flooded um bringing it up to the surface would it build some kind of pressure we, inside and and uh typically we fly these things on on a government aircraft a v- big case like this they'll send the recorder back on a on a government aircraft and uh basically the FAA's private jet, and uh, it was available to us for this mission, but we weren't sure if bringing it up to cabin pressure altitude sure, yeah. was going to do something and not only make the VDR explode, but maybe maybe the plane. And I think we were being <laughs> extra careful, but it was a unique circumstance where yeah. actually uh, Doug Mansell, who was a recorder specialist at the time, um, he disassembled it on the ship to make sure that oh. that, that wouldn't happen. Okay. And uh, the device worked as designed. Um, and 15,250 feet of pressure, which I, th- I think it's somewhere around six to 7,000 PSI. Wow. Um, it didn't penetrate what they call the inner capsule, which is where all the data is. Uh, so we bring that thing. Uh, Doug brings it back to the lab, and uh, basically, like I said, the work starts here. Doug worked on the data side, and I worked on the audio side. What it revealed was uh, 26 hours of, of audio recording yeah. and, and data. Um, so
0: there's 26 hours of audio recording, mm-hmm how how long did you listen to it? Like, sure. if you can so, think like cumulatively, like how yeah. many hours
1: do you think you put in listening to it as you transcribe yeah, it, again, all that I, process? Again, yeah. I can talk, you know, a really long t- time in the whole other <laughs> podcast about that. But basically just to listen to the recording takes about an entire work week. Um, wow. So if you think about a 40 hour work week, you know, you have to come in, you know, do some email and paperwork and then really get down to listening it. And then y- y- you can't, you can't do it for seven hours straight because you need a break here, or there yeah. to keep your mind fresh. So, when you put that all together, it really takes a week just to just to listen to that 26-hour recording. Yeah. Um, so then, not only listen to it, but uh, then start the process of transcribing it. So we wow. we formed what's called a group, uh, what the NTSB calls a group. So it's uh, conducted of or consists of um, all the different party members in, involved in the investigation, yeah. and then one representative from each party uh is invited to to come be a part of the transcription group. Yeah. Um, so that that process took about uh I want to say it was about 20 straight days off the bat of 10-hour days, you know, transcribing this thing okay. and the audio quality wasn't great. It's not as good as James here's doing with this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um so that the 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 crew members on the ship they don't have a mic right yeah. in front of them like we do now and uh we basically rely on ambient sounds. And additionally, the ship's at sea in a hurricane, so uh,
0: a, lot a lot of, te- of yeah, a noise. lot of
1: technical challenges to get the ambient yeah. noise filtered out, and then also you know the case was high profile, so a lot of people constantly asking, hey, when's the transcript going to be? Yeah. When's it going to be done? When's it going to be done? You know, basically we we took our time and tried not to miss a single word, and we, did, we hit it on the first pass. I think twenty days came back for another week for a second session where we we kind of cleaned up certain areas mm-hmm. and then, uh, we had, we had, uh, I hadn't, I think I had misfiltered a small area and it was only like a few minutes of recording. And even though, uh, we, we still invited the whole group to come back and, and hit that last little few minutes for, for the, I think that took about a day to square it all away. All so, uh, it was quite a process.
0: That's amazing. So. And I mean, and the fact that so much, energy and effort was put into it, you know, 26 hours to go through all of that. Um, we'll link to it in the podcast description, but you can read the transcript that you mm-hmm. put together. It's it's a, an amazing read. It's 500-something pages, I want to say, the whole transcript, yeah, if I remember 511. right. 511. <laughs> yeah. Okay, there we go. 511, 15,262 well. feet <laughs> down, um, yeah. so you know, it, to go through that, and you can see the party members. But the process, and, and like you said, I think that's you – know, we try to, you know, get little tidbits of, you know, NTSB, mm-hmm. how we work, but – not giving, you know, not falling into any of those pressures. You you mm-hmm. had a lot of data they had to go through, and it, it was really important data. And so you had right. to make sure that you got it right and that you didn't rush the process or do anything like that. So I think that's really important yeah, to exactly. kind of get across. The
1: other thing that's kind of behind the scenes is you don't want to release the transcript to the other investigative parties before it's complete. So you, you want to give depth and clarity to it and a completeness yeah. So when we were working on the transcript it's almost I want not say quite working in secret is the right term but um we're not going to go telling people until the bits and pieces of what's yeah. in there until until it's complete and I think that was uh um hard for some people to deal with initially cuz like I said the case was so high profile but in the end I think everyone understands that that's the way you know really um is appropriate to, to have an investigation performed in that in that manner. Yeah, no so, it's
0: he, he... You gotta, you know, what cross your T's, dot your I's, make mm-hmm. sure everything's together, and 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 not just within the um, voyage data recorders, but also within cockpit voice recorders. All these things. There's a lot of there's a lot of other regulations, federal law, all mm-hmm. these things that go into it. It's not just as easy as listening to it, transcribing it. You right. you know, make sure everyone understands it. You get the context that goes with it. All of those pieces. So it's a, um, uh, you know, NTSB is known as like the people that investigate aviation crashes, mm-hmm. but then there's this part like the black box right. people and uh, orange box, whatever you want to call it, because <laughs> you know you can buy it. But there's, you know, all these different modes of transportation. They have it, and and you guys are yeah. I should
1: mention on. the the statute. There's a federal statute that requires us not to, or essentially, to make a transcript. So the NTSB, if, if the listeners don't know, we're we're barred from releasing the the audio recording, and it's for a number of number of reasons. Um, but that's really what drives the requirement to, to make the transcript in the first place. Yeah. Uh, so just to say – tell that to the listeners so they they understand more clearly that uh, a lot of times it's not like what you see in the movie where they're playing the CVR out in the middle of a a, a hearing. Yeah. It just doesn't happen that way. Um,
0: it's all very protected and, right. you know, to so make sure that it's as accurate as possible. Right. So it's – and I would say
1: even within the agency it's not like everyone here has mm-hmm. an opportunity to listen to them right i mean you all are even very careful with you know only the people that really need to hear that sort of thing are the ones that listen to. yeah them. and it, and exa- exactly and that's uh you know for the same reasons as i mentioned before we call it protecting the the audio and uh when the audio is deemed protected or covered under the statute it's limited into the number of people that can listen to it so uh we developed a transcript and other investigators can request a copy of the transcript, yeah. but um really the, the bare minimum of people that are uh, deemed, you know, appropriate or to have the right background to offer some kind of input to that transcript are, are there to listen. Yeah. And then additionally, one thing that people don't often know is uh, in, in the instance of surviving crew members, we actually offer the surviving crew members uh, a chance to come and listen with us in the lab before we finalize oh, the okay. transcript. And, uh, you're, the listeners might notice in certain CVR reports um, there are instances where we have a section where the surviving crew will make, you know, their own comments as to what they intend to clarify. That won't change what the group came right. up in terms of the meat and potatoes of the transcript, but it will allow them an opportunity to hear it and make a comment. As, and maybe you know, help so. provide a little
0: context. Of, exactly. You know, I was there. This is what, you know, they mm-hmm. were trying to say, I think. But, you know, this is what they did say. You know, Right. Something so like other than
1: the in, other than the investigators that are authorized to listen to it is uh the the surviving crew can come in and you know they're probably the last person that that will hear it so right i mean i love it
0: it's for the wonky side it's amazing and but you're also providing a lot of uh rich information to be able to help the investigators and to and to get all that information out there so that's really cool uh we're closing up on the end but there are two other things that i want to hit you and Mm -hmm. so We'll get you back. This, this podcast, you know, we yeah. we have enough uh, we have enough in the budget to be able to put out a few more episodes. So we'll get you we'll get you on here again to talk about some more of the accidents um, uh, because I, I do I want to have conversations mm-hmm. with you and some others to talk about the El Faro because um, it's one of the biggest ones we've had mm-hmm. probably since TW eight hundred maybe it's the
1: biggest marine one that's happened in a long time. Yeah. Um, Two year long investigation. Yeah, I mean part of that because we didn't have the data recorder for a year, but. <laughs> Definitely one of the longer ones in recent history. So. Yeah.
0: So we'll we'll get get some folks together and have that. So dear listeners, that'll be coming soon. And uh, you also were part of the Lockhart, Texas um, hot air balloon crash. So I'd like to right. talk to you about that sure. at, at another point too. But I want to get into two things. You're, you are um, a general aviation pli- pilot. You went I, – because I love this mm-hmm. side of it. You did the eclipse. Yeah. You went and saw <laughs> the eclipse. So, so A – When I first read that in your notes you sent me, I was thinking that you flew
1: through the Eclipse, like you were doing that. I consider that that a possibility, possibility, (laughs) but I wanted to take it in from the ground. So I always joke to say, you know, being a pilot, you spend most of your time training. Um, So there's, you know, there's a handful of flights in my life where I really use general aviation to its full advantage. And I think the the Eclipse was really like the best way to highlight how to use GA or how people use GA in the United States. Um, so I had thought of this like, Hey, you know, this eclipse is coming through and, uh, it's going to require, you know, get, we have good weather, a, just to see it. And then B, you know, you kind of got to be in the right place. And, and the line of totality wasn't really anywhere near Washington, DC. Um, so I had thought about it months before it had crossed my mind and I was like, Oh, that's clever. Maybe I'll be the only one. And then, long story <laughs> short, the airport I ended up flying to had about 200 GA planes <laughs> land there um all so, within, like the same 20 minutes yeah so it's it's uh <laughs> i had originally ch- thought i was going to go to charleston south carolina which is a great place um but then i started looking at the forecasts and uh it helps that we you know you have a meteorologist to work with oh, here sure, yeah <laughs> so i sometimes bounce questions off of Paul Sufferin. so uh the forecast in charleston wasn't looking too too likely because it's coastal and there would be some afternoon rain um so basically looking at you know um aviation weather forecast picking area high pressure and that put me in tennessee which is a little bit longer flight so in a cessna that i fly it was about a i think about four and a half or sorry four hours not counting the fuel stops okay um maybe closer to three and a half i don't remember um basically launched out of dc uh the night before because i was worried about the the uh the airport being closed due to the number of planes set to arrive uh, there yeah. so I, I called up the airport and i said you know these small fbo's and this particular town in in tennessee i don't think they get a lot of traffic but they got a six thousand foot long runway which is kind of unique for an untowered airport so and i called said, them that's up pretty long isn't yeah, it yeah i called them yeah. up and said hey i'm a pilot i want to fly in for the eclipse and then initially the guy was really hesitant like oh well we got a number of planes coming and he's like well and eventually he's like what kind of plane are you and i'm like i'm in a cessna he's like oh okay I was getting hundreds of calls from different business jets everywhere oh. coming in. He's like, you're fine. Just come here. And he's like, and I was like, kind of, if anyone knows about Oshkosh, it's, it's a big air, air show where you camp. And I was, I wanted to airplane camp there basically. And I was kind of hinting at the question, talking to the airport manager said, hey, uh, is there any, are there any campgrounds around? And he's like, well, you can just camp on the field. I was like, oh, that's really what I wanted to ask you. So, uh, <laughs> the, the three of my friends and I, uh. We we took out of here Sunday, the day before the eclipse. Luckily, had good weather. Got fuel in Tennessee. Sorry, got fuel in Kentucky, and uh, flew into the the eclipse. uh, There, flew in the uh, McMinn was it McMinn County Airport in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Might be saying the town wrong. Um, There were about ten other crazy GA pilots already there camping. So we kind of had a kind of had a pre eclipse party the night before. (laughs) Camped over. Also, you know, I had the plane at maximum gross weight, so I basically could only take a tent and a sleeping bag. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we camped out there and uh, luckily we had perfect, uh, amazing weather for the eclipse. And uh, the next morning was an air show with hundreds of planes flying in oh, wow. to take it all in. And it was just a really unique experience and uh, I think a perfect use for general aviation. So flew flew out right after the eclipse ended, uh, fired the plane up and took off along with 200 other people that had the same idea. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it was a great trip. <laughs> I, I've
0: only done car camping, so I really want to kind of now experience uh, Cessna camping Right, and, now you and should. do that. So I, I may try to organize a trip with you on that one. Uh, yeah. I'm a bigger individual, so I may set you at gross weight. So we'll have to, we'll have to do some math to figure that yeah. out. Um, but then the last thing I want to speak in of math. Mm-hmm. So if you follow our Twitter feed, dear That's listeners, kind of you right. may have seen that there were some and Instagram. I think and, on Instagram, Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have some very smart individuals here that figured out that the International Spy Museum, which is moving their their they're moving from downtown DC to L'Enfant Plaza, where our headquarters are, and they've been well, I don't know for the past year and a half building this ginormous structure, kind of in the courtyard of L'Enfant Plaza for about. Uh, was it about five months? It was a green wall. So mm-hmm. when the light hit it just right, everything in NTSB headquarters glued green um, as it came <laughs> oh, through yeah, the window. Like, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> uh, all of the folks that had windowed areas had them all closed because their offices were were green. Glowing it was glowing. Green. It was kind of if, as if Kermit was like glowing everywhere. So, so then they decided to put all the facade up. I don't know how even, I don't speak binary, so I didn't even (laughs) get any of this, but they put a code, and Sean and some of his colleagues were the ones that that cracked the code, and can you explain how that even came about? Like, (laughs) did someone just go like, oh yeah, hey, do you know that says something? I mean, how does this even come up?
1: No, yeah, we were all trying to think back how we knew it was a code initially, and we (laughs) thought that maybe Sarah, our supervisor, had read somewhere that there was going to be one, but it was kind of like long forgotten about. And then uh, they started putting the paneling up and it was kind of becoming clear that it was some, you know, some kind of pattern. Yeah. And uh, the way they were building it, it, you, it really kind of needed to all be done in order to make anything of it. And the last few weeks before we saw this kind of occasionally look at it and say, like, oh, I should work on that. You know, I should see, you know, start, start <laughs> seeing what it is. And I was like, nah, I'm too lazy. <laughs> um, and then finally, you know, I think it was the week. Yeah, just the other week. It was between... Christmas and New Year's. Mm-hmm. um There was there's a there's I saw one of my my coworkers John is a performance engineer, really smart guy. I saw he had a picture of it up on his monitor. I knew he was working on it, so I said, "Are you?" I said, "Do you think that's a code too?" He's like, "Yeah." And he like I said, "Okay, if you get it, don't tell me the answer. I'm gonna go start working on it now." So he sent me his photo, and uh basically Ben Shu Ben Shu and I uh, another engineer in RE forty or sorry the vehicle recorders division. Uh, basically started you know okay it's binary but what it what is it what does it yeah. represent and and uh, first we tried hex which is a way to simplify uh binary and hex didn't really speak to anything and then threw it into ascii which is a basic you know computer computer language and uh it, it started spelling it well first it didn't spell anything but it spelled some 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 letters and then okay we flipped the bits the other way and it started spelling a word and then uh it just became a matter of how how good your eye was at, yeah. at typing in those those individual panels as ones or zeros, and uh, we actually kind of took a break, went to lunch, and then the the sun had changed, like the position of the sun had changed. So uh, it's actually quite clever that they design in such a way so if the panels are hitting hitting sun the other way, it, yeah. it doesn't mean anything. Okay. So uh, there's a little confusion there, but eventually figured that, that part out of it and then uh, tweeted it at the Spy Museum and you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, NTSB retweeted me. <laughs> I think I got the most likes of any Twitter because uh, I, I don't really have any follows. I don't want Hey, when you catch something
0: like that and you let us know about right. it, I mean, that's, and that's John, pretty And then John went
1: even further. He had solved it too, um, but he doesn't tweet. So he had solved it. I, I told the Spy Museum that he, he solved it too, but he went further and emailed them and he had found they made some mistakes in their code. <laughs> so I wasn't, I wasn't ready to, 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 to rub it in their face, but uh, it was pretty funny. So we all got offered, uh, I think, a one-year membership to the museum when it opens and a uh, a special tour with the curator. So bring my dad down for that should be pretty fun. That's so. really cool. Yeah.
0: That's, I mean, that's when, when we saw that and one of the staff, oh, I think it was Leah flagged. It was like, Hey, I think this is one. Of, yeah. Is this, I think it's Sean. Yeah. Done. Yeah. They, they, it's
1: binary. They yeah. figured
0: this out. Like, you know, the fact that anyone could do that. It's it just, just
1: ironic that we're one of the few laboratories where, like, we actually <laughs> still work in binary with flight recorders. So it's not, it's not really something that a lot of, you know, computer scientists are going to see nowadays, yeah. at least on the front end. Well, so it's like we're used to looking at it at binary, and it's, it's just yeah, it's kind of ridiculous <laughs> for you.
0: But in, in my mind, I'm thinking someone that's by museum is like, oh, this is awesome. We're going to tell people there's a code. And no <laughs> one's going to figure it out. They're, this isn't going to go anywhere. And then the the last panel has been on for maybe 12 hours and yeah, someone's we, already kind of got it figured out. It's like, well, you shouldn't have have it aimed at the, the NTSB, NTSB headquarters. headquarters. Right. I mean, sorry, you, you could have had it point the other way. You know, I don't think the postal service would have got yeah, it They're on the, the irony, other side, the irony but, of it. <laughs> but you know, you aimed it right at us. So, um, so I think, I mean, I think that's a great story because it just, you know, no one, no one else would have looked at those panels and been like, Oh yeah, I would have just noticed that there's different shading going on and right. and next, thing you know, I would not have guessed binary. Anyone else in the room guess no?
1: So no. all that no. I, I didn't think we'd get it so quickly, but uh, <laughs> but I I knew that it had to be somewhere. That was pretty cool. But uh No. Yeah, so we're, I'm looking forward to my free tour. <laughs> that's awesome. No, that is really
0: cool. So uh, you know the fun stuff that you can do at the NTSB and and you know, that's just one of the really smart things that we can do. We can figure out codes on your building. So if you have a building in the D.C. area and you want us to figure it out, <laughs> just send us a note uh, and, and we'll be happy to do it. Um, well, uh, Sean, I really want to thank you for, for yeah, doing this. This was it. awesome. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. We didn't even get, I mean, we didn't even get to half the notes uh, on issues to talk about. So uh, I have a lot of lists. Uh, well, uh, not a lot, but everyone that's come on, I hope to do a repeat with at some point. But, um, you know, look forward to it to that chat, but this was great. I really appreciate it. Um, any last words of wisdom you'd like to share with the listeners before we sign off today?
1: Uh, sure. I guess, yes. I, I always put this in every presentation I give and it's my own little way to toot the NTSBs, uh, you know, public docket system is, uh, every accident and in addition to a final report, which is usually uh, publicized, there's a, a public docket of factual mm-hmm. information, you can get to that public docket. I I think the easiest way is just Google NTSB public docket and throw the accent number in there. And that'll reveal, um, all the different factual reports that you might not otherwise see. Um,
0: and they go back, they go back quite a ways. I mean, they're working on trying to get some of the historical reports in. Like I believe chairman, someone even mentioned that he looked up the case that, uh, -hmm. that got him interested in aviation. when He was a, uh, a young
1: lad. Yeah. It goes back quite a way. I, I think, uh, a lot of a lot of other pilots and people in the industry, I think they're just not all that familiar that it exists, yeah. and they're like, "Hey, well, why didn't you guys look at this?" I'm like, "Well, we did. You just got to find it in yeah. our in our docket system." So I always put that in all my presentations how to how to find the public docket, and nice. that's where you can read all of research and engineering's reports, um, all the different kinds of safety wrecks that come from accidents too that might not be publicized in the uh, in the final you know, PDF that a lot of people yeah. just read. So. And it's if you just go to www.ntsb.gov, it's mm-hmm. kind of right oh, in the right. middle it of is, the homepage. It the is home linked page. on the homepage, yeah. 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 It is and, linked on the homepage. And we'll
0: yeah. be sure to link it in the uh, sure. podcast description as well so sure. uh, so you can find the public docket and uh, check out some of the work that Sean did on El Faro. And I bet you if you Google his name, NTSB, you can see some of the other uh, reports that he's worked on as well. So, mm-hmm. um, again, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Uh, thanks to Stephanie James James for, for joining me. Um, If you have any questions, make sure to hit us up at all of our social medias. Uh, You can also send us a note at safetyadvocacy at ntsb.gov. And um, uh, we appreciate you downloading it. And join us in a couple weeks when we have another episode going up. So this is Eric, and thank you very much. Bye. (music)